Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. We're reading from Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. You can follow along in your Bibles or you can look on the screen behind for the reading. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Thanks, Tanya. Um, I just want to point out too, the uh, Mission Partners uh, QR code this week is for compassion. And uh, it's one of those things with compassion that uh, one of the things we can do is write letters to them. And uh, as I was reading that just then, there was a prompt to write a letter to our compassion child. It's around Christmas time. So if you've got a compassion child, I'd encourage you to send a letter uh, to them. Um, it's, it's such an encouragement, I think, as we think about mission, because the, the reason we care about this is because Jesus cared about this. You know, we have a heart for mission because that's what Jesus did. He came to seek and save the lost. And the more we are like Jesus, the more we'll care for that too. So I'm super encouraged by you guys this morning, Tanya and Katie. And uh, yeah, it's just a a great morning. Um, I'm going to pray again though for us right now that God would speak to us and then we'll hook into this passage. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you that you are a God who speaks and that you speak to us through your word. Um, Lord, you are living and active And so we pray that right now um, that you would speak to us, that you'd give us ears to hear and a heart to understand. And we pray that we would walk out this morning different um, because we've met with the living God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christmas is full of weird claims. I don't know if you've sat and thought about that for a while, but this week it came across uh, my desk uh, as an article around the 12 days of Christmas was opened on my computer. Uh, That has to be one of the strangest songs, and it's just on every year. You know, uh, for me personally, I've never really thought about this except for that one episode of the US office where you've got that moment where they do that. But outside of that, I don't know if you've ever thought about how crazy that song is. In fact, over 12 days of Christmas, this article said there are 364 presents given in 12 days. If you are trying to do that maths, you can do that. If I'm wrong, take it up with the internet. I don't really care about that. But it was saying 364 presents and the cost, if you can have a guess how much that would cost, $105,000 over 12 days of Christmas. And every year, this song just appears. Does it not? It just appears. You know, my true love gave me all of these presents. It's on and we listen to it and it's outrageous. And we got to acknowledge that. It's a crazy claim. But of course, we know that in terms of crazy claims at Christmas, I mean, this is just part of the season. You know, there's the crazy claim of the big red guy that comes through your chimney and gives you presents. We don't have a chimney, so I'm assuming we're expecting him through our air conditioner vents this year to deliver our presents and to drink our uh, vegan macadamia milk. Good luck to him if he comes into our house. Uh, That's on him for choosing to do that. Or if it's not that guy, it's the green guy, the Grinch, who will come and steal your presents. This is a season where people just go wild on the crazy claims of Christmas. But let's be real for a moment and honest 
with each other. As we gather together in a church, you can think about it, right? The 12 days of Christmas, Santa, the Grinch, they are child's play compared to the Christian claims of Christmas, right? Like, we, we got to be honest about that. You know, we are claiming that there's a virgin birth, that the living God entered into humanity, that the God that the Old Testament prophes, uh, prophesied about, the king from the Old Testament, that he's finally here, that this one in the manger is God among us, and one day he will deliver his people by dying and rising again and ascending forever. You know, when you think about it, I think if you got the average Australian and uh, you ask them what are the craziest claims of Christmas and you put 12 days of Christmas, Santa, the Grinch, or the Christmas story, what do you think they're saying is the craziest claim of the lot? I think a few people would say the, the Christian account of Christmas. And so what we want to do this morning is we just want to spend some time thinking about this and, and thinking about this and, and asking some questions about this, thinking about the, the certainty. How do we know that the Christmas story that Christians claim is actually true? That's, that's what we want to think about this morning. How do we know it's actually true? And instead of like just palming off our doubts and our questions, let's explore that for a moment and think about how can we have certainty over what we've heard around Christmas. Now, the reason we're doing this this morning is because Luke, in that verse that Tanya just read for us, this is why he's writing. In fact, in verse 4 of chapter 1, he says, I'm writing this that you may have certainty over the things that you've, you've been taught. Uh, the, the goal for Luke, the, the goal is to write that Theophilus and us can have certainty over all that we have heard around the Christmas story and the Christian story. And so how do we know it's true? How can we have certainty over this? Well, in these four verses here this morning, we've got three reasons. Three reasons for certainty when it comes to the Christmas story. So if you've got your Bibles there, let's have a look because it begins in chapter 1, verse 1, where we see that the first reason we can have certainty because it was seen. The Christmas story was seen. Let's, let's have a look. Chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So the first reason we can have confidence and certainty over the Christmas story and the Christian story is because it was seen. Did you get that sense there? That Luke is saying, I am recording, I'm writing down for you what the eyewitnesses said. The eyewitnesses saw it. Now, this is important. Let's not, like, let's not just read this and then move past it. This, this matters to us. We know that eyewitness accounts are important. You know, we, we get this. In the secular society, we understand this. I mean, you think about it in a courtroom, right? Eyewitnesses matter. You know, they're really important. Uh, in fact, if you think about it in a courtroom, if the eyewitness is telling the truth, it can sometimes sway the whole decision. You know, one uh, article said this about uh, the importance of eyewitnesses. Sammy, can, can we go to that? Yeah. When a legal team presents an eyewitness who can, uh, who can confidently identify the suspect and confirm what they saw, uh, that they saw them commit a crime, jurors are compelled to believe them. We know that eyewitnesses in our world are important. You know, uh, sometimes whole cases depend on it. But we also know that sometimes eyewitnesses can fabricate the truth. In fact, the very next line of this article said this, however, eyewitness testimony has a fatal flaw. It's not always accurate. If a witness provides testimony that is untrue or mistaken, it can lead to a wrongful conviction. So sometimes eyewitnesses are really good and sometimes they're not really good. And so what we want to do is just spend a moment thinking, well, if, if Luke spoke to eyewitnesses, and if eyewitnesses matter, is there a way to test the eyewitnesses? You know, can we actually test if, if they were actually telling the truth or if they were fabricating it? 
Well, I think there's two things here that, that help us understand that we can have confidence in the eyewitness account. Two things, as we work through the book of Luke, that you will see partly in this series as we work through this in the kind of the Christmas story, but you actually see right throughout the book of Luke. So the first thing to help us have confidence in the eyewitness account is that many of the eyewitnesses were women. Now, I know that in our day and age, this doesn't sound like a big deal. Um, in fact, uh, we would hope that in our day and age, the gender of an eyewitness doesn't matter at all. You know, we would say that. However, in the ancient world, this was not always the case. Um, in the ancient world, uh, actually, in the ancient Greco world where this was written, women's testimonies were not believed. You wouldn't have a woman tell their testimony in a courtroom because they wouldn't be believed. Now, I know that that sounds crazy, but this is the world that Luke is writing in. Now, why is this a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because many of the eyewitnesses in the book of Luke were actually women. He records it. And, and there's crucial moments for this as well. So in this story, you get this moment where, in the Christmas story, you get this moment where uh, Elizabeth and Mary, so Elizabeth, you get Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, where they meet for the first time, and Elizabeth says, you know, John the Baptist leapt in my womb. And you just think about that, right? I'm pretty confident no guy saw that happen. That's, uh, that's Elizabeth's testimony. And, and yet what Luke is telling us is he's just recording for us as if it's fact, as if it's true. Now, if he was fabricating it, he wouldn't have told that story. He would have used a different story that a man could have validated, but he's telling it because it actually happened and it's true. Or my favorite moment is actually at the end of the Gospel of Luke. So when Jesus dies and rises again, there's this moment where the very first people to see Jesus and the empty tomb in chapter 24 were actually women. Now again, this doesn't seem like a big deal in our culture and in our context, but if Luke was fabricating this and he wanted people to believe it, he would have used men in that day and age. It, it's a really significant point that right throughout the eyewitness account of Luke, we got lots of women throughout it. And why do we have women? Well, Luke isn't interested in fabricating the story, he just wants you to know that it's true and that it happened. So the first thing that helps us test the eyewitness account is that there were women. The second thing that helps us test this, though, is the fact that uh, so often in the book of Luke, the eyewitnesses appear really badly. Okay, now again, this doesn't seem like a big deal in our culture. So in Australian culture right now, if you tell a self-deprecating story, people might even like you more. Have you noticed that? Like, I don't know if this is true in your friendship circles, but it's definitely true in mine. My best friends are the people that rip me apart the most. You know, because that's what our culture does, right? If someone likes you, they're probably going to criticize you in our culture. But in the ancient culture, this didn't happen. And the reason for that is it was the shame and honor culture, right? So the, and, a, and a shame and honor culture meant that you would do everything you could to avoid shame and everything you could do to get honor. And if there was a story that would bring shame, you simply wouldn't tell it. Or what you would do is, you would change it to make yourself look like the hero in the story. Now, why is this significant? Well, in the book of Luke, a lot of the times, the eyewitnesses look terrible. Right? They actually just come across as terrible. The only hero is Jesus, and he'll die on a cross, so there's some other things attached to that. But what we got is the, the eyewitness accounts of the disciples and, and lots of other people, and, and they just look bad the whole time. So a couple of examples of this. Zechariah, he's the first one that we'll meet in this story. He's married to Elizabeth. An angel meets Zechariah uh, and tells him, you're going to have a baby, and Zechariah somewhat doubts him, arrogantly almost, and then goes mute for like a few months. 
And as you're reading the story, you just think, man, he looks terrible. But then you also think about it, how does anyone know that story? Well, it's because Zechariah told them. You know, Zechariah is the eyewitness in that moment, and he's telling the story as it happened. He's not fabricating that, saying there was another reason for his decision not to speak. No, he was arrogant, and that's what happened. Or you think of the disciples. Lots of the disciples in the book of Luke come across just as fools, really, most of the time. In fact, my favorite one is Peter. Now, you know, again, the context matters. Peter, this is the guy the church will be built on. You know, this is the, like the, kind of the leader of leaders in terms of the disciples and all that sort of stuff. And yet, Peter looks terrible a lot of the journey of Jesus' life. Again, my, the, the favorite moment of mine is when um, he says to Jesus, as Jesus says, you know, he's going to the cross and all that stuff, and Peter says, I will never deny you. And then five minutes later, denies Jesus three times. And you just think about that, right? Like, why is that in our Bibles? It's because it's true. Like, Peter could have fabricated that. And you know, what comes to my mind is like, how many times, if you were alive back then, how many times would you have asked Peter, did you really deny Jesus three times? That would have been so annoying for Peter. And yet he, he records it because it's a significant part of the story and it's actually true. He doesn't, he doesn't do the cultural thing and just pursue honor. He tells the story as it happened. Or even again in Luke 24, when Jesus dies and rises again, there's this moment where Jesus appears to his disciples. And he shows them his hands and his feet. And he's standing in front of them. And then they, they still don't believe because of joy and amazement. It's as if they're, trans, you know, they're, they're, I mean, they're transfixed by what's happening. And, and that makes sense. But, but Jesus kind of essentially goes, okay, fine, I'll sit with you and eat with you to get it through your heads that I'm actually alive. And again, you just, you read that moment and you think they don't look good in that story. And yet they're the eyewitnesses. Now, I know that in our cultural moment, in our cultural context, this doesn't seem like a big deal. But if you are fabricating the truth, if you are making this thing up, you would never use eyewitnesses like this. You know, if Luke wanted us to believe something that wasn't true, he would have used men, and he, and he, and he made it, would have made them look good. But yet what we have in the Bible is women, and they don't look good, right, throughout the story. So, so when we think about the eyewitnesses in the story, I think we can actually have certainty. We can have confidence that what we have here, people actually saw and they told us this truth. Now I know this morning that this is not the end of the story. This is a part of the story. Just because eyewitnesses saw it doesn't mean it definitely happened. But of course, it's pretty significant that people actually saw this take place. You know, this wasn't a dream. This wasn't a vision. This took place in a real time and place in history. So the first way that we can believe this actually happened is because it was seen. The second, though, is as we keep reading, it's because it was investigated. So let's keep reading in Luke's uh, opening. He says this, With this in mind, so the eyewitnesses and servants of the word, they shared this, With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated from the beginning, I decided to write this. What Luke is saying here is, I, I looked into this. I carefully investigated it. Now, again, this is a good thing for us, right? I mean, if we could somehow place one of us back in the ancient world and, and go and talk to the eyewitnesses, we would say, hey, make sure you investigate it. You know, like we would do that. We would say, don't just believe the eyewitnesses when they tell you. Double check, triple check, go after them. Well, that's what we would do. We would, we would want someone to carefully investigate it. Well, Luke says, I carefully investigated it. So how does this bring us certainty? Well, I think we can see this play out in a number of ways. The first is when we consider the way that Luke writes. So Luke writes in such a way that he shows us his investigation unfolding. And, you know, when you've got this in your mind, you begin to see this in Luke. So there's a number of times where he's telling stories and he, and he shows you the eyewitnesses. 
You know, and, and again, if you were in the ancient world and you read this for the first time, you'd go, oh, cool, I can go and talk to that person and that person and that person, right? Like he actually, he records it for us. He gives us the names. He says, this is who I talk to and this is their story. This is who I talk to and this is their story. And he's not just believing it. He's double-checking and triple-checking. He's going after this. He carefully investigates his eyewitnesses. But there's another way you see this careful investigation take place, and it's through the way that he uses the historical context of what's happening in that moment. So it's on the screen there behind me, but you can see this unfold, and there's a number of times where he just refers to what was happening in that day. He dates us, right? So chapter 1, verse 5, he says, in the time of the king of Judah. You know, do you see what he's doing there? He's saying, hey, this, you remember the king of Judah? This happened then. Um, in chapter 2, verse 1, you get this again. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that, that a census should be taken. So he's dating us. He's putting us in that moment. In chapter 3, verse 1, you get this again. This is quite a lengthy one, but look at it. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, Herod, the tetriarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, the tetriarch of Iturea and Traconicus and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene. And, you know, you read those words and you think, why is he putting that in there for us? Was Luke just trying to trip us up when we were reading that out? But, of course, he's doing something here. He's grounding us historically. You know, this is not a dream or a vision. This is a place in history. And I love over time, you know, different archaeologists have been able to validate the, the things that Luke is saying here of going, oh yeah, that guy did rule then, and did rule then, and did rule then. And so you begin to see where the Bible actually fits in this story. You know, when you think about his investigation, it's fascinating how he wants us to see the way that he investigated. And when you begin to see this, I think it does help us have certainty. You know, this isn't just like, this isn't just a book that's written. This is a guy who's actually exploring this and wanting us to be certain that it actually happened. So, so the first way that the investigation brings us certainty is as we see this play out. But the second way is when we think about why he needed to carefully investigate it. And, and, and I think this helps us when we see this with what's on, at, what's on the line. You know, like, what's at stake here for Luke? So consider this in our day and age right now. You know, consider uh, if you were to start a cult, what would you gain from that? Now, I know maybe you've never thought about this before, but, you know, if you haven't, you could get some power, fame, uh, you could get, you know, following, some money, you know, sex, right? That's what it seems like cult leaders are pursuing and stuff like that. And on the one hand, you look at these cults that rise up and these leaders and you kind of go, on the one hand, it makes sense why they would do that. On the other hand, just for me, I don't think it's worth it, right? I don't think that's worth it. But you, can, you get why someone would do that. I mean, people do other things for those sorts of things. So you sort of understand why someone would start a new religion or whatever today. But for Luke, he gets none of this. Right? There's no fame or power or money in terms of what he's pursuing here. In fact, essentially the opposite is true. You know, Luke was a doctor. We find this out from elsewhere in the Bible that Luke was a doctor. And for him to go after and, and write the Gospel of Luke, he's essentially putting his reputation on the line. You know, doctors were respected in their society, and yet Christianity was not respected in the society. You know, the, the Jews hated Christianity. The Rome, uh, Romans saw it as a threat to their emperors. And so he's not, he's not doing this for power or fame. The opposite is true. And not only that, he's essentially running towards persecution. You know, you, you, you think in the ancient world, Christians were not 
they weren't free to do whatever they wanted. They were persecuted. They suffered for their faith. And so for Luke to, to write this account, and, and when you consider the persecution, what you, you begin to see is you begin to see it's really crucial that he did carefully investigate it. You know, like there's a lot at stake here for Luke. And so he wants to make sure that he's really looking into that. Now, now I do love what you see here. I love when you see this careful investigation that it sort of brings us certainty. But I love one of the other implications that you see from this line here too. And the implication is this. The implication is that God invites you to carefully investigate it. You know, I think that's one of the implications. Luke did. You know, he, he carefully investigated. I think God invites us to carefully investigate the claims of Christmas and the claims of Christianity. You know, like, sometimes I think, and I thought this growing up, sometimes we can think that God is somehow scared of our questions. You know, you can grow up thinking, I have a doubt, and God is scared of my doubts. But the truth is, God is not scared of your questions or your doubts. In fact, the opposite is true. He invites you to explore those. He invites you. In fact, I heard it put like this. Doubts are a doorway to deeper faith. When you have a doubt, it, it helps you actually go after that and find an answer to that. God invites you to explore your doubts and your questions. And I, and I love that we see this in, in people and in stories. You know, if you saw on social media this week on our Facebook and Instagram page, we told Kieran's story. If you missed it, you've got to go and have a look at it. It's hugely encouraging. But uh, what he shares is how he came to faith. He explored his doubts and he came to faith. Or another example is a guy called Lee Strobel. Um, I've talked about this before and somewhat, but uh, Lee Strobel is kind of a semi-famous. He's written some books and stuff like that. But his story was he was an atheist and he came home one day to find out that his wife had became a Christian. And so as an investigative journalist, which is what his job was, he basically said, I'm going to prove you wrong. I love the things that people do for love, you know. <laughs> and so what he does is he goes after it. He says, well, I'm going to prove you wrong, I'm going to investigate this. And what Lee Strobel says is one by one, his doubts began to be answered. Now, one of the things for Lee Strobel that I think is hugely convincing is when you consider the nature of the cross. So, so here's the reality for Christians. We've been singing about it all morning already, but the cross is central to our faith. You know, Paul said, I resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. The cross is everything to us. But when you think about it, the cross has been changed culturally over time. So right now, in our culture, the cross is everywhere, and you don't really even notice this. You know, people wear it around their necks. Uh, you know, you might even have a tattoo of it. You might, uh, it, it might be on the, you know, well, it was on the door on the way in. You might not have even noticed that. You know, you've got the red cross. The cross is sort of inbuilt in some doctors and hospitals and all that sort of stuff. Culturally, right now, we don't even think about the cross. But in the ancient world, the cross was the symbol of disgust. Now, it, it really is worth just slowing down and thinking about this. The symbol of disgust, right? So I've heard it said like this, the way you feel to the worst kind of criminals... Okay, so feel this for a moment, because there is a feeling that rises in our gut towards the worst types of criminals. You know, when you read the news and you see stuff about pedophilia or murderers or abuse, and that, you know, even, I mean, the story Tanya and Katie were telling before about slavery and modern-day slavery and all that sort of stuff, the more you read about that, the sicker you feel about that. 
in the ancient world, this is how people felt towards the cross. Because those types of people were killed on the cross. Yet now, the cross is not that, right? It's not the symbol of disgust. It's not the symbol of death. Now it's the symbol of life and peace. And you've got to think historically, how does that happen? How does it go from disgust to life and peace? Well, the answer is actually Jesus. In his death and resurrection, he basically says the cross is this moment where he was taking the chaos so that we could have peace, where he was taking our punishment so that we could have life, dying so that we could be freed. And I love the way that Lee Strobel puts it. When he considers all the stuff with Jesus, he has this quote, which I think is so powerful. He says, we have to ask, why is there no other first century Jew who has millions of followers today? Why isn't there a John the Baptist movement? Why of all the first century figures, including Roman emperors who had power and fame and all that stuff, why is Jesus still worshipped today while the others have crumbled into the dust of history? And why is it that the cross, a symbol of disgust, is now a symbol of life and peace? It's because it's true. That's why. It's because this actually happened. And what Luke shows us and what God invites us to is to investigate this, to go after this, to explore this and to think about this, not to let our doubts get the better of us, but to explore the doubts as a doorway to a deeper faith and to ask these questions. Because when we will ask these questions, what happens is one by one, we begin to see that the big claims of Christmas are wonderfully true. So as we see Luke begin and write, what he starts with is he starts with the fact that it was seen. Eyewitnesses saw it. Second, it was carefully investigated. One more thing this morning, though. The last thing that we see that Luke does for us is he records this. So have a look at this again. So he says, with this in mind, in verse 3, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. The third reason we can have certainty about this is, is it's because it was reco- recorded. Now, I know that the fact that it was recorded doesn't seem like a big deal for us today um, because, you know, we can record anything. You know, you pull your phone out and you can write some notes down and the whole internet can see it or whatever if that's what you want to do with that. But in the ancient world, that is not how records take, took place. And when you dig into this, there's some certainty that's to be gained from thinking about the fact that it was recorded. And again... It's because of two reasons. So the first is because to record anything down was hugely expensive in the ancient world. Now, this is a big deal because in the ancient world, we looked at this last week, right? They didn't just have pen and paper. In the ancient world, if you wanted to record something down, there was a process. There was a parchment or a leather that you needed to get. And then you needed to pay a scribe who would write down on that parchment or letter. And then if you wanted it to be sent, you would have to pay someone to deliver that parchment or letter to be confident that it got to the place where you wanted to go. It was expensive to to do that. In fact, one estimate is to write like an average size, a small to average size letter, one estimate, this was 2006, so who knows what inflation does with that, but one estimate back then was $5,000. It's a lot of money to write a small letter. So historically, there's a few examples of letters that we have outside of the Bible. The smallest letter you've got is 18 words in ancient history. I don't know, they thought it was expensive, so they thought, let's just keep it short. You know, I don't know what it said, but 18 words, a pretty short letter that they found. 
Um, the average length of a letter was basically a quarter of the size of the book of Luke because of how much it cost. And then here we sit with Luke, right? a massive book, but it was a hugely expensive process to actually record the Bible down. Now, it's not the silver bullet, but I think it does help us begin to understand that these people that wrote this down really valued it. You know, because of when you consider all that was at stake, reputation, persecution, not only that, you're putting money into it, this is something they really valued and they put it down. But this leads us to the next point, which is the second big thing about the records that help us have certainty, and it's when you just consider the sheer amount of records that we have of the Bible. Okay, so you may never have considered this idea before, but how do you know something happened 2,000 years ago? Have you ever thought about how you know something happened historically? Because we... For me, for most of my life, I just assumed we know because we know. I don't know, I never thought about it. But actually, the way that we know something happened 2,000 years ago or longer is it was recorded down. But of course, they didn't have the printing press. So you can't just make a book and then put it into a printing press and then make multiple books. What you had to do was you would write it down and then people would start to make manuscripts of that. And those manuscripts would be written and written and written and written and get spread around the place, right? That's how that you would know something happened in the ancient world. So, so the bottom line is when you start to consider that, the bottom line is this. The more manuscripts you have, the more confident you can be in the original. All right, so the example is this. Say, you know, Luke was writing today and he was writing in Israel, right? And so he wrote the Gospel of Luke in Israel and then he wanted that, one copy to be spread. People would write manuscripts of it and say, you know, those manuscripts got spread around to some went to Asia and some went to Europe and then, you know, the ones that went to Europe went up to the UK or whatever and then went into America and the ones that went down to Asia went down to Australia and, you know, here we are today and say I've got a Gospel of Luke in my hand and then I meet someone from America who's also got a Gospel of Luke. Do you know how you can compare the accuracy of those manuscripts? You just compare them with each other. Because if, if my copy in Australia is the same as his copy in America, what you can see is they came from the same source. Do you see? That's how. It came from the same source. And so the manuscripts were actually right. Now, this is how, historically, you test if something is true, if something was actually recorded and, and, and what we have is really what was recorded. And, and what this is, is this is a science called textual criticism. Right now, I know you, you may never have thought about this, but historians do this type of thing. They think about the textual criticism of something like this. Now, again, the bottom line is this. The more manuscripts, the more confident you can have of something. Now, here's why this matters. This week, on, you know, I said uh, on social media, Kieran's testimony was shared. And what I love about Kieran's story is he says in week two of Alpha, there's this moment where they talk about the textual criticism. And they, they talk about this idea. And really, at the heart of this is there's a bunch of stuff outside of the Bible that we just believe as historically true. And yet, when we're coming to the Bible, sometimes we have questions about, can we really believe what it actually said? And yet, in this moment in textual criticism, you kind of explore how actually in the Bible you can be really confident of what it said, and maybe those other things you need to test a little bit more. And Kieran said when he did this, and I love that, like literally, this is word for word, he said, it took the Bible from words to truth. Now, I thought what I could do is I could kind of show you this. I could tell you about that, this moment in Alpha where they talk about this. But I thought, why don't we just watch it? 
So here this morning, we've got a two-minute video where they talk about textual criticism, and you'll see what I mean by the sheer amount of manuscripts that the Bible has. So let's watch this two-minute video, and then we'll wrap it up. Textual criticism examines the number of copies of early texts that we have available to us today. And it looks at the time gap between the original document and the earliest copy that we have. And basically, the more manuscripts we have and the earlier they are, the less doubt there's going to be about the original. So let's compare the Bible to other texts in ancient history, ones that are widely used in schools and universities. Let's look at the Greek historians Herodotus and Thucydides. They both wrote in the 5th century BC. But the earliest copy of their writings that we have dates from AD 900, and that makes a 1,300-year time lapse. And even then, we only have eight copies of these manuscripts in the first place. Or look at the Roman historian Tacitus. There's a thousand-year gap between his book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies. Or another classic, Caesar's Gallic War. 950 years between the book being written and our first manuscript copy. And even then, we only have nine or ten copies of these manuscripts. Again, with Livy's famous History of Rome, a 900-year gap between the book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies of this. But when it comes to the New Testament, well, it's very different. The New Testament was written between about 40 and 100 AD, and we have manuscript evidence going back as early as 130 AD, and full manuscripts by 350 AD. And we have more than 5,300 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin translations, and 9,300 others. So, you know, we can be pretty confident in the accuracy, the authenticity, and the integrity of the New Testament scriptures that have been passed down to us today. The remarkable thing about the Bible is there's such a short chronological distance between the events being described and our first manuscripts. So in many ways, the Bible scholars are in a very fortunate position of being able to check these things out and finding that they are much more reliable than, for example, some of the alternatives you're looking at. And as a scholar, I am more than happy to say, I trust this, I take it very, very seriously, I rely on it. Every time I watch that, I'm struck by the amount of manuscripts that the Bible has. You know, it's not something that we often think about, but the Bible stands alone in terms of a historical book compared to any other book. Now, as you are watching that, maybe you've got questions about that. You know, maybe there's some things that you wanted to ask about that. The beauty of what we've talked about today is there's an invitation to explore that. Ask those questions. I'd love to chat to you about it. If you can't get me today, send me an email. I'd love to talk more about this because the truth is we can be confident in the Bible's accuracy, the authenticity and the integrity of what we have here which means we can be confident that what we have in Luke is actually what Luke wrote. This is his careful investigation of the eyewitness account. And what we're about to see, of course, it gets, you know, we get into the claims of Christmas, you know, we get into that, and we'll look at that as, we goes on, as this series goes on. But the records, as well as the fact that it was investigated and seen, it helps us know with certainty that this thing actually happened. Now, when we pull all these things together, you know, when we think about the fact that the, this was seen, 
this was recorded and that, that it was investigated. We, it does do something for us. So let's think about this practically for a moment. Let's just quickly think about what this does for us. Two things that this does for us this morning. We've got two things. The first thing is this. When we think about all of this evidence that was seen, recorded, and investigated, when we think about this, the first thing this does for us is it gives us confidence moving into this season. You know what I mean? Like, you might be limping into Christmas. Maybe that's not what you're doing. Maybe you're crawling. Maybe you're being dragged into Christmas. When we think about Christmas, though, we've got to be honest. The claims that we have are big and can appear crazy to certain people. But as we go into this season, we can have a deep assurance and confidence that the, there's truth in the story of Christmas. That all of the things that happen is wonderfully true. The, the, the virgin birth, God with us, that God came into our world to fix our world that God came near to us, that he added to his divinity, humanity. This is a beautiful truth, and we can have confidence in it. So today, as we think about this, and as we go towards this Christmas season, let's move with the certainty and assurance that this is actually true. That's the first thing it does for us, but the second is this. The second is the claims of Christmas must be investigated. You know, we, we can't afford to not investigate the Christian story of Christmas. You can, you can afford to ignore the other claims, you know, the things, and I'll let you and your family decide what you are going to search up and what you're not going to search up and how you're going to do that. But for me, I'm going to be honest this morning, I just don't think the 12 days of Christmas really happened. I'll go out on a limb and say that, right? I think it's made up. But do you know what? If I die, when I die, like all of us, I'm going to stand before the living God. And when I stand before the living God... And God says to me in that moment, Ben, i got something to tell you. The 12 days of Christmas actually happened. In that moment, nothing's going to change, right? I'll go, cool, <laughs> you know, who cares? But Christmas and the Christian story of Christmas is not like that. Now, th this account is not something you can ignore. It's not something you can avoid. It's not something that you can afford to leave because the truth is one day you will stand before the living God. And on that day, the living God will tell you it's true. And he might ask, why didn't you look into it? Why didn't you put your trust in Jesus? You heard it. You heard it every Christmas. You saw the mangers. You, you heard that stuff. You were at church that day. But on that day, if we choose to ignore it, it will be too late. And it won't be a joyful moment. It won't be good. We will face the just judgment of God for ignoring him our whole life. So what do we do? Well, we must look into it. We must look into the Christmas story. Now, before it's too late, we must pursue our doubts and our questions and look into Jesus. And what's going to happen if we look into this is one by one, we will find out that the Christian story is beautifully true. And it will change your life now, and it will change that day when we stand before God forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you now, we thank you so much, Lord, that we can have certainty over the things that we've heard. Lord, we thank you that 
Jesus, you entered into history in a real time and place that the story of Jesus, the good news of Jesus was seen and investigated and recorded. Lord, thank you that we can have confidence in this. And we pray, Father, that as we look to Jesus, that you would give us this certainty, that you would give us eyes to see. And we pray, Lord, that if we're sitting here today with questions or doubts, may we explore those, may we pursue those, and may it be the doorway to a deeper faith where we learn to have confidence and trust in all that Jesus is and the beauty of the truth of Christmas. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.